Good evening, Roots uh, members. Hello, everyone. You can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be reading through verses 1 through 11. Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 11. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passions, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked, when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. All right, let's uh, pray for our time quickly and then we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, so much for who you are. Thank you for being uh, our life. Please um, just help us to see the truths of Colossians chapter 3. We've come so far, and you've taught us so much, and we want to keep growing. We want to see all of the amazing truths you've given us so that we know uh, how we might live, not only because you have uh, the authority and the glorious reign over our lives to command us to do so, but also because of the love you have displayed uh, even in your rules, even in your commands. We want to see those things so we see you and we love you more deeply and we might live it out for everyone to see. So please help us do that, Lord, by um, giving us good attention um, to see what you uh, would have for us today. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. Raise your hand if you've ever been on a plane before. Basically everyone. Good. Then this will make sense. Remember the last time you went through airport security. You're excited, hopefully, wherever you're going, whether you're going on vacation or going to see a good friend or going on a short-term missions trip, maybe, and you're waiting to go through the last thing um, that you need to do before you get on your flight, which is security. And you go through, and the worst or most annoying or most embarrassing thing that could possibly happen happens, which is you are stopped at airport security. You are singled out and you are taken out of the line. And you are asking, why is this happening to me? I have no weapon on me, I have no dangerous materials on me, and I certainly didn't have any metal on me when I went through the metal detector, yet you were set aside anyway. And as the security officer tells you why, he points to the water bottle in your hand. And he says, that can't go on the plane. Apparently, if you've never gone through this before, there is a rule that you are not allowed to have any liquid, be it toothpaste even, or hand cream, or water bottles, whatever it is, you are not allowed to bring any liquid 
that is over 100 milliliters with you onto the plane. That's 3.4 ounces if you're not Canadian. Apparently, milliliters is Canadian or something. Um, that might seem like a ridiculous rule to you, but it is a rule. And if you were curious why, there is a reason that that rule exists. The reason that rule exists is because somewhere between uh, 2009 to 2016, about half a dozen instances occurred where people were caught, terrorists were caught, trying to transport dangerous explosives through water bottles, toothpaste, hand cream, you name it. And before you get freaked out, just so you know, apparently a ton of technology has been developed to track that even better so that in the future we can bring things like water bottles on planes. And all of those times that people tried to do that, they were caught. So rest assured, this is not a particularly dangerous threat, but it is a rule. And the reason you need to know that is because that rule exists for a reason. Rules are an inescapable part of life and an unavoidable part of life. And sometimes they're ridiculous and we feel like they're unimportant. But every rule, whether it has a good reason or a bad reason, has a reason behind it. And that is because of this principle, this principle that is going to play out in the next two Colossian sermons that we go through. Rules are a result of values. Rules are a result of values. Wherever you go and whoever you meet, people have rules in their life, and that is because they value things in their life. Since people want to enjoy, treasure, and protect what they love and what they find important, they create rules. Our values create rules. For example, the airport has a rule against 100 milliliter liquids because they value your safety. Because your safety is important, they have created a rule to protect that. If you look at your life, all of the rules that you follow have a value behind it. Think of the kinds of rules you obey. I was trying to think of them in my life and thought of at least two reasons. Uh, when I was a kid, I liked to go to the Canadian equivalent of Chuck E. Cheese, and I found out one time that you're not allowed to bring cap guns into Chuck E. Cheese. Um, if you don't know what a cap gun is, you fire it. It's kind of like a starter's pistol. It has a tiny, tiny little firework in it, and it makes a big bang. And I found out there is a rule that you're not allowed to bring those in, and this is why. Chuck E. Cheese values fun. They value fun for everyone, and they have created an environment as best they can so you can have fun, and part of their fun does not include me firing a gun and freaking everybody out. So they have a rule to protect everyone's ability to have fun. Another one I was thinking about is the certain rules that existed that used to send me very often in kindergarten to what's called the thinking chair. The thinking chair is a place where you think about what you've done. I put air quotes because you didn't always think about what you've done. My kindergarten class valued community order, and again in air quotes, playing nicely with other kids. And when people like me didn't play nicely with other kids, they were sent to the thinking chair. That rule existed because of a value. And I'll say it again, it's important to understand, rules are a result of values. You could say it this way, values create rules. As long as people find something important, they will create rules to make it so it's protected, treasured, and enjoyed. The airport values security, they make rules accordingly. 
Chuck E. Cheese values fun, they make rules accordingly. My kindergarten class values community and order, and they make rules appropriately. This applies to our spiritual life because where we're about to go in Colossians for most of the rest of Colossians is going to be rules. God has rules. And it is very easy as people who don't like to follow rules naturally to see a list of rules and not take them seriously. But here is the truth behind it. When you see a rule from God, you are exposed to what God values. God does not have rules for no reason, and God has reasons why he has given us rules for how to live and how not to live. This has been a massive part of Colossians that we've been studying so far. Chapter one was this amazing explanation doctrinally of what God values, and chief amongst all those things is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. He is the king of a better kingdom And he has created an opportunity for us, even as sinners who are unholy and unrighteous before God, to be able to enter the kingdom. And that has an effect on how we live. The gospel in being people who live in Christ's kingdom that is coming, but has come to our hearts, affects the way we live. And it affects the rules that we follow. Now, a lot of chapter two that we covered was about all of the rules that we do not need to follow. The false teachers had come into the Colossae church and they had created rules that they wanted Christians to live by because of what they believed was spiritually mature. But the reality was those rules were unimportant. And those rules were unimportant because the false teachers had the wrong values. And if they had the wrong values, they would create the wrong rules. For example, Paul says in chapter 2, verse 19, that they did not hold fast to the head. The head is Christ. So if they don't claim Christ as their authority, they're never going to create rules that would honor Christ. That is the logical outflow of of the false teacher's theology. Another really good place to see this is chapter 2, verse 23, the last verse in chapter 2, where he says these rules are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These rules don't help you stop sinning. And so if they don't help you stop sinning, what good are they? How do they help you live as a spiritually mature person? And so as a result of that, as we started last week in chapter three, Paul is going to explain, if you are a Christ follower, you are in Christ's kingdom. If you are in Christ's kingdom, you live according to how God tells us to live. As we will see in Colossians chapter 3, this affects every area of our life. It affects what we do. It affects what we do not do. It affects how we interact with our friends and parents. It affects how we interact with people in society, both Christians and non-believers. It even affects how we live out in our workplace. And Christ is gracious enough to explain to us the attitudes of himself and as a result, the attitudes that people who love him naturally want to follow. We love God's perfect values in his perfect kingdom, and therefore we are reminded that we want to follow God's rules. That is what we're looking at today. In the next two sections, so the next two sermons, today and tomorrow, Paul is going to follow a very easy-to-follow pattern. First of all, he's going to explain five or six sins that Christians no longer live by. Christians do not sin in these particular ways. He's going to define five or six sins of how people in Christ's kingdom do not live. And then 
He's going to give us reasons why. He's going to say, don't live this way, and here's why you don't live this way. Because God has reasons behind his rules, and we naturally want to follow them because we love Christ. So let's get into it. Paul is going to explain five sins that Christians must kill so that we live like citizens of Christ's kingdom. Once again, Paul explains five sins that Christians must kill so that we live like citizens of Christ's kingdom. That's where we're going at today. And that begins very quickly with a list of sins in verse 5. This is verse 5 of Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. That's verse 5. The setup for this is everything Paul has just mentioned, you must put to death. You must put to death. This is much more than a minor adjustment to your life. This is identifying sin and executing it, killing it, destroying it, permanently removing it from your life. And that is because we take sin seriously. The values behind these sins are corrupt and totally unlike God. And because we love God, we follow his commandments willingly because they're righteous. So let's look at what these sins are briefly, and then we'll go to the reasons Paul says why we kill them. So the first is probably the last thing that anyone in a youth group wants to hear, which is sexual immorality. Whether you think it's awkward or whether you think it is something too uh, hard to mention, um, the reality is it's in the Bible. And if it's in the Bible, then it matters. It is essential to our lives, and we have to identify it so that, as Paul says, we can kill it. The reality is that God, and part of his good gifts, is that he has designed people for intimacy. He has designed people to love and show affection to certain people, and that looks different in different contexts. And God has explained exactly what context. And therefore, what sexual immorality is are the ways that you don't display that. One way you could explain sexual immorality is this. It is any act of physical intimacy that is outside God's commanded context. I'll say that one more time. Sexual immorality is any act of physical intimacy that is outside God's commanded context. God has explained where intimacy takes place and where it absolutely does not take place. For example, anything outside of marriage, anything not between a man and a woman, these are very, very clear commandments in both the Old and New Testament, and they are for us to live by. I often don't give you guys the Greek words, but anytime I do, it'll normally be because you actually learn something from hearing the word spoken. And the Greek word for this is the word porneia. So if you hear that word, unfortunately, it probably sounds familiar to you, and that's for a reason. But the idea behind that word porneia is the idea of selling something. It is to sell something. So when physical intimacy is being used as a tool, when it's being used as something that I use to get what I want or get something I should not have now or maybe ever or something that I shouldn't have in this way, in this context, then that qualifies as a sin. That qualifies as sexual immorality. When something becomes about me getting something rather than giving something or according to how God has commanded, that is sexual immorality. And the next three things that are mentioned, impurity, passion, and evil desire, all of those are just expanding and qualifying what sexual immorality is. The next word we have is impurity, which is going from physical intimacy on the outside into the inside. What's going on in my heart when I commit that sin? Basically, impurity is the idea of me deciding what is clean 
and unclean. In the Old Testament, they had laws for what was clean and unclean, which means what is correct and what is incorrect. So when I'm committing the sin of impurity, I am deciding myself to ignore what God has said about what is clean and unclean and take that upon myself and then sin accordingly. The next word we have is passion, which might seem like a weird word to say because it kind of sounds like emotion. This is not the sin of being emotional necessarily. This is not about having emotions. Emotions are a good thing. But the sin of passion is specifically using our emotions to justify wrong actions. You might have evidence of this when you hear someone who is doing something that you know is wrong and they say, well, we were in love, or we don't know what came over us, or it just happened. A lot of times people say something like that because of this idea of passion. I am using my emotions to say, now because I have emotions in this area, I can now do this thing and it's not wrong. And when that happens, you have things like love turn into things like lust. And that's the idea that Paul is getting to. And the more that you do that, the more that you allow your emotions to rule more and more of your life, that's when your emotions start to be more and more contrary to what God has commanded. And that's how you get the fourth one, which is evil desire. The more you allow yourself to set the agenda for what is right and what is wrong, that's when your desires become wicked and contrary to God. And the last one we have, the fifth one that we have, is the sin of covetousness. And then many of you have heard that before, but that verb, that idea, is the idea of greed. One pastor said, it is an inappropriate desire for more. The idea is that when God himself and his good gifts are not good enough, and you use sin to get something else, that's covetousness. That is greed. It is the idea of rejecting God as someone that could satisfy so you seek, to things, you seek to be satisfied by things that cannot satisfy and never do satisfy you. Another pastor said it this way, greed refers to the belief that everything, including other people, exists for my own personal amusement and purpose. It is the desire to possess more and more things and to run over other people to get to them. This is identifying something like greed, whether it's in a huge context or in a small little detail of your life, identifying it for exactly what it is. And when you hear a description of like that, you can see why Paul naturally goes to another sin and makes it the same as covetousness. He says covetousness is idolatry. Bottom line, covetousness, which is idolatry means being greedy is the sin of making something that is not God, God, which means you are making yourself God. That is what idolatry is. That is what greediness is. It is worshiping something as if it was God and therefore making yourself God. And Paul identifies these things because these are five ways that Christians are no longer supposed to live. And because God is gracious and because Paul is doing what God has commanded him to do, he's not pointing these things out to just make people feel bad or to force them into what he thinks is right living. This is God telling his people, you are kingdom citizens, and these are ways you no longer live. And so Paul naturally, as he explains them, explains to us the reasons why. We do not live this way, and there's a reason why. And Paul tells us what they are in his text. Verse 5, before he even gets to the sins, he gives us the first reason. The first reason that we do not live this way is because it is earthly. We do not live this way because it is earthly. Verse 5 says, put to death what is earthly in you. 
If you compare these sins to the context of Colossae, if you could go in a time machine back to Colossae, you would notice something about all of these sins, all five of them. The first one is that they have to do all of them with sexual immorality, even covetousness, which is still a bit broader than just that, but it is involved in that as well. But the other thing is that these five sins could really sum up the whole culture. You would meet a lot of people in the Colossian church and their testimony would be sexual immorality. It was maybe the most common thing people dealt with. And if you went out into the city of Colossae, into greater Greece area, to the entire ancient Near Eastern context, you would see that this was something that invaded everything that had to do with the economy, everything that had to do with the government, even most religions had this wrapped up in all of it. And if you think about that, and then you come back in your time machine back to now, we'll notice, I think, pretty obviously that that is so not different from the, to the context that we live in now. Now, these sins have always been something that have been private and public. And in this context, they were incredibly public and incredibly graphic. But there's a certain sense in which we now, even in all culture, are starting to compete with how graphic these sins are even in comparison to Greece. These things are rampant publicly in terms of using things for social conversation, like for example, sexuality and every conversation that's been had on TV and how every topic seems to come back to this. And it's seen publicly in the fact that everything seems to use sex to sell something. Whether it's simple romanticism or whether it's showing you someone as a standard for beauty or whether it's something even worse than that, it is always used to sell something. And that is because marketers know the human heart. This is something that every human struggles with. Maybe the one way that we have Greek culture beat in terms of how uh, vast and broad this kind of sin is, is in terms of accessibility, and you guys know this. Every single popular social media thing YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, it has become incredibly easy, even on the most public of programs, to find things like this, to see sex as something that is sold and something that demonstrates value. And this is where we get back to how we opened this sermon. Rules are a result of value. Why does the world value something like sexual immorality and you to define the rules of something like sex? And the reality is because we have always, as human beings, without Christ, we have valued personal pleasure over divine purpose. We have always valued our own pleasure outside of divine purpose. And this is what that means, because there's a value there. We value ourselves so much that we will sin, and, in the t and as we sin, we will devalue other people. If other people are only used as something for my own pleasure, then we do not value people. People become tools, people become something that we use. And that is a sin because that is totally contrary to the way God views you. Whether you are a believer or not a believer, there is one fact that is intangible, whether you believe in God or not, to your existence, which is this, you bear the image of God. You bear the image of God. And if you bear the image of God, you have eternal value. This is not God making a rule to force you to live some random way so he can exert control over your life. This is God declaring every single person has value. Because when you look at someone, you see the creative hand of God 
upon them, and therefore you treat them that way. You do not treat them as something that simply exists for you. They exist for God. And therefore God has had a rule like this to protect us from assuming that we can play God with people. God is demonstrating a kind of grace to us in explaining that we are to handle people with care. People are a soul that is going to last for eternity, and we need to see it that way. And we don't see it that way if we live according to an earthly perspective. Remember Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Set your mind on things above and not things that are on earth. A things below perspective devalues people for my pleasure. A divine perspective set on things above values people because I see them the way God sees them. And so I treat them and I respect them and I love them the way God loves them. Because no matter where they are destined for, they are God's and they are not mine. And that is a good principle. Think about how amazing it is that we could actually see people the way God sees them and we could naturally value them the way God values them. And that is why we don't do these things because we do not live according to the things below. We live by the things above and therefore we do not do these things because we do not live by an earthly perspective. This is the second reason that Paul gets into in verse six. The second reason that we do not live this way is because it invites the wrath of God. It invites the wrath of God. Verse 6 says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So here's the promise I want to make with you. For the next five to six minutes, I want to take this as seriously as we possibly can. And no matter how much it might sting, no matter how much it might hurt, and it hurts me too, knowing this is a sin that I have committed in my life. We want to take this seriously so we can accept sin the way God sees sin. And then I promise you that the last reason we will go to will be encouraging. So let's look at this as seriously as we can with the knowledge that God is going to pick us up even if we feel like we fall down, okay? So this is the reality. God has wrath. Wrath means that God has a holy anger against everything that opposes his will. Holiness means separation from sin. So God has a perfect anger against everything that opposes his will. God hates sin. We forget that so often. You might hate sin, and I know I hate sin, but no matter how much we hate sin, we have never perfectly hated sin because we've committed sin, but God has always perfectly hated sin. Because God is perfect and in control, he has promised that he will always punish all sin. All sin. He has seen every sin. He knows every sin that has come out of our hearts and is hiding in our hearts, and he will punish sin. Now, sometimes that results in present consequences, especially if you think about something like sexual immorality. There are present consequences that immediately happen when this sin is committed. But when Paul says in verse 6 that the wrath of God is coming, he's really talking like we learned at church retreat. He is talking about things that are coming in the future, the last eternal judgment of God in which all consequences for sin will be paid in full. The idea here that Paul is really saying is that God's holy anger against sin is always watching us and one day it is going to be revealed. And that means something about what God values. God values his holiness. And he doesn't just value his own holiness, which he perfectly values, but he also values your holiness. 
God values his holiness so much that he is currently now preparing all of us who are in Christ for a place of perfect holiness, and that affects the way we live now. One way you could think about it is simply this. God is preparing you now to go to heaven and have heaven feel like home. God is preparing you now to have heaven feel like home, and that involves your holiness. There's a very famous pastor that I'd encourage all of you to read. His name is J.C. Ryle. And J.C. Ryle had a really awesome, eye-opening quote that talks about this. This is what J.C. Ryle said. Most men hope to go to heaven when they die, but few ever take the trouble to consider whether they would enjoy heaven if they got there. Heaven is essentially a holy place. Its inhabitants are all holy. Its occupations are all holy. To be really happy in heaven, it is clear and plain that we must be somewhat trained and made ready for heaven while we were on earth. No man can possibly be happy in a place where he's not in his element and where not everything around him is agreeable to his tastes and his habits and his character. So I will not admit that an unholy man could ever be happy in heaven until I say an eagle that is happy in a cage or a sheep that is happy in the water or an owl that is happy in the sun or a fish that is happy on dry land. That is such an eye-opening quote because this is what it means. If we are comfortable... If we are comfortable with sin now, what does that mean about what we want heaven to look like? If we are comfortable in our sin now, then we want heaven to have sin in it. We want heaven to look like the world. So what is God doing us when he reminds us of his wrath? He's asking us questions as a warning. He's asking us to examine our hearts and ask these questions. Do I hate sin? Do I hate sin like God hates sin? Do I wish God would remove sin from me completely because I know the feeling of captivity? Do I comfortably walk in sin because I love it? Do I criticize other people comfortably, but I harbor and let sin infest in my own life? Because it's easier to identify sin in others than it is sin in myself. This is the beautiful thing about this. No matter how painful this is, If God is giving us a warning, it means he cares enough to give us a warning. It means that he has come in this moment to remind us how serious sin is and how much we jeopardize a beautiful expectation of heaven when we walk in sin. That's why Christ says things like Matthew 5.30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away because it is better for you to lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Many people before me have said that he's not literally talking about chopping off your hand, but he's saying if you take sin seriously, use every extreme method possible to remove it from your life. If it means your phone has to go in the garbage, get rid of it. If it means that you are no longer on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram, if it means you can't walk in the mall for a while, do it. Because it's better to do that now than to not be with God forever. And this is why God is saying this. It's not to freak you out. It's not just to freak you out into heaven. It's not just to scare you away from hell so you'd go anywhere else. It's not. It's because of this. Romans chapter 2, 4 says, God wants you to know he is patient with you. It says, God has displayed to us his forbearance and his patience because he desires it would lead us to repentance. Part of the reason Christ is not back yet is because there are still people who need to become Christians. 
And if there's still people that need to become Christians, God cares about us. He's patient with us. He cares about us. And he cares how we are living now. So we seriously examine if we hate sin like God does. So that our expectation and excitement and joy for heaven would grow. Two reasons we do not live in these sins. Number one, because it is earthly. And number two, because it invites the wrath of God. Here's the third. This is the encouraging part. This is the part that Paul wants to pick us up from the ground and make us rejoice in these truths. We do not live this way because, number three, we are no longer those people. We are no longer those people. Paul has been building our expectation of the free grace of Christ so we would know that his grace doesn't just forgive us, it changes us, it transforms us. And Paul wants to say as explicitly as possible, you are not you anymore. The you that loved sin, the you that was comfortable with sin, that doesn't exist anymore. And this is not Paul forgetting that we still sin because none of us are perfect. This is Paul reminding us that our comfortability with sin doesn't exist because we love something more than sin and that's Christ. Because we've seen the overwhelming glory of Christ and since that supernatural transformation has taken place, it is natural for us to do what is good in God's sight. It is natural. Think about the metaphor that Paul uses about good works. It's bearing fruit. You guys have heard bearing fruit, right? Listen to this quote that a pastor said. He said, a tree does not produce fruit by an act of Congress. So saying a governor of California doesn't walk up to a tree and says, bear fruit, I told you to. That's not how trees work. Trees exist, and they are nourished from water and whatever other chemical imbalances take place. I was an English student, so I don't know what they are. But a tree just naturally bears fruit. It's what a tree does. Because a tree is the way it is, it naturally bears fruit. And Paul wants to make the same logical conclusion with us. If you are a Christian, you naturally bear fruit. Not because you're forced to. Because you serve a good God. And so of course you want to do good. That you do good perfectly? No. You want to do good perfectly? Absolutely. I naturally want to kill all the sin in my life because I know what heaven is like and it will be without sin and I want to be as faithful and holy, a representative as I can to others to invite them into that better coming kingdom. Now, I think if we think about that and then we leave and we think about this like 15 minutes later, okay? So after small group, after you go home, after you're sitting in bed, maybe after you go to sleep and wake up on Saturday morning and you think about this, I think this is what we think. We say that's arrogant. We say, I've struggled with this sin, I have dealt with this sin. It is lodged in my heart. There's no way it's that easy. There is no way it's that easy. I was thinking about a commercial that I saw years ago uh, from Staples. You guys know Staples? Like they, they sell paper products and stuff. They used to have this thing where someone would come in and say, I need paper. It's so hard to find the paper that I need. Um, and then someone would pull out a button that said easy, and they'd hit the button, and it would say, that was easy. And all of a sudden, they just like had paper and stuff. I think we see that and we think this is like God's easy button. It's just like, I'm a Christian and like sin is gone. And that seems arrogant. That seems too easy. This is the amazing part. It is that easy. If we're being faithful to scripture, it is that easy. Why? Because verse seven says it. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. This is all past tense. 
Not that you're perfect, but you know what sin is, and so you can act in a more and more holy way that you don't need to follow that sin anymore. You are no longer a slave. And again, to say the principle again and again, rules are a result of values. If God wants you to know that you don't need to obey sin because it's not natural to you anymore, that explains what God values. This is what God values, your assurance. God values your being assured that you are saved. Because if you can identify sin in your life and you don't want it to exist, then you have received the gospel. That is good evidence. And that means God has also given you, at the same time, the ability to execute sin in your life. You don't need to be a slave to it anymore. It comes at the same process. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible that's so awesome is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 to 11. Paul explains there are certain people who will never inherit the kingdom of God, and it sounds like God is being so picky. It sounds like he's saying, this is who's going to make it, this is who's not going to make it. This is what he says in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what he says next. And such were some of you. That's who you used to be. And then what happened, Paul? He says in verse 11, you were washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of a God. He's basically saying you accepted the gospel. If you accepted the gospel, you're not that person anymore. Not because you don't struggle with those sins. That's not who you are anymore. You are identified with Christ. To give you a spoiler alert, in verse 11 of Colossians 3, he says, Christ is all and in all. You are all Christ. When the Father looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. And therefore, you can identify yourself and your life in accordance with Christ and not these sins. This is the reality. When you go to heaven, you're going to see lots of people. Lots of people who used to be idolaters, used to be adulterers, used to practice homosexuality. They used to be thieves and greedy and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. And they still struggled with those sins in their life. But you know what? They experienced more and more victory as they looked more and more at Christ. Because God gave them the gospel. This is the truth of the gospel. That God not only forgives you, he does transform you. He does make you hate sin, and he does make you love Christ more and more at the same time. And because I don't want us to just walk away thinking I need to repeat I'm a Christian to kill sin, let me just very briefly tell you, if you are struggling with sexual immorality, if you are struggling with selfishness, join the club, okay? Join the club. These are sins mentioned to us because they're relevant for us today. And the reality is you are not alone not only with the people in our community, but with Christ who loves you desperately and who died for you. So if I can give you really uh, quickly three things that can help you if you're looking for how to actually effectively kill sin in your life, if these reasons just aren't connecting. Here are three really quick reasons. They're one word that all start with a T, okay? Three words that start with a T. Number one, trust. Trust that God's grace is for you. Your literal name is not written in the Bible, 
but your name is written on Christ's heart if you are reading about the gospel and you believe it. That is the work of the Spirit, and you have to trust God that it is for you. God has forgiven you, and he will transform you. Trust God that that is the case. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look at Christ, and you will become like Christ. That is sanctification. Look at Christ first. Look at his better kingdom coming. And if you believe it's coming, and if you believe that Christ has given you an acceptance of the gospel, he has also promised that he will transform you. Trust God. Number two, turn. That's the literal interpretation of the word repent, turn. Trust God and turn, turn away from your sin. The reality is you cannot look two directions at once. You cannot look this way and then this way. And in the gospel, God has taken your eyes off this world and turned them on Christ. So when you see your sin, remind yourself who you actually are in Christ. And as you are tempted in sin and given away from sin, do not turn away from Christ. Look at your sin identify it for what it is, recognize we deserve the wrath of God, turn to Christ and accept his free forgiveness that he has given to you freely. Turn from your sin, identify it, turn to Christ, recognize your guilt and accept his free grace. Trust God, turn to Christ. Number three, tell, tell another person, tell someone. I can tell you, as someone and someone who knows many, many people who have struggled with these sins, tell someone. As awkward as you think it is to tell your parents, they are probably the greatest help you could ever have in your life because you know that they love you and you know that you can trust them. Tell them. If you can't tell them or if something is up or there's confusion or anything like that, tell one of us. Tell your leaders. We will look at an effective plan to help you Take extreme measures against sin so you can experience the freedom of Christ and so that you can establish on your own an independent plan to turn away from sin, but you will never, ever do it alone. We're going to learn next week, Christ takes people from where they are, and he doesn't separate them from the world and give them nobody. He gives them other believers. He gives them a local church. He gives them people. So tell someone, you're not the only person dealing with this sin. It's like when you ask a question in class, and you get nervous, and you finally ask a question and says, thank you. The teacher says, thank you for saying that question because someone else probably had the same question. It's the same with sin. If you're dealing with the sin, someone else is probably dealing with the sin. Trust God, turn from your sin, and tell someone. And as we even leave today, let me just very briefly remind you as, you, as we conclude, rules are a result of values. God values his image on people and his holiness and his holiness in people, and he values your assurance. That's why he tells us how to live. That's why he tells us not to live, because he wants to build our expectation for a better kingdom that is coming. Have a taste for it now. To live like who we are and to be a rep better representative to the world of how great and gracious he is. This, this is what I want to do right before we go to small groups, because I've used too much time. I want to pray, but I just want to take a couple of seconds of just silence and I want just everyone to just pray on their own for a sec to God, okay? Pray for the times you have dealt with these sins. Pray that God would help explain to you a plan of action so you can deal with these sins. And confess them to God and thank him for the grace he has given you and the trust you can have in him that he can change you. I just want to do that for 30 seconds and then I'll close in prayer. So just pray with me just in silence just for a couple minutes.
Father, it is amazing to imagine just the grace that you have provided in freedom. Lord, this world has such a corrupted view of freedom, and we know it because we have it too. In our hearts, even us who believe, even us who love you, we know who we were. We know what we thought freedom was. We thought freedom was giving ourselves over to the sinful desires of our heart and living the way we wanted, having no idea the wrath that we deserved. But Lord, it was so costly. It was such an affront to your holy character that you had to deal with it yourself. And you did by giving your son Christ that he would die on the cross for our sins, that he bought the wrath deserved for us. Now all we know is grace. Our whole lives are lived under the banner of unrighteous yet citizen of Christ's kingdom. Let that motivate ourselves to execute sin, to flee from these things that will never satisfy, not like you, not for eternity. Christ, we always want more of you, but we are always filled. We are never empty when we drink from your living waters. Let us never, ever consider you as less and perfect and all satisfying. But for anyone in this room who is dealing with these sins, we just pray, Lord, that we would all adopt and that they would adopt um, the kind of thinking of the kingdom, Lord, that the gospel is enough to transform us from sin and it is enough to compel us to come to you. I just pray for boldness with our students, encourage with our students, no matter what they are struggling with, no matter what um, they are in now. There is always room at the foot of the cross. It is never too full. None of us are too far off from your grace. So Lord, let that just motivate us to confess sin, to accept your grace, and to put it to death because that's what you have done for us on the cross. Let that not change after today. Let that be something that motivates us deeper and more clearly. And we pray all of these things in your wonderful and righteous name. Amen. Uh, thanks, guys, uh, just for paying attention. I know a good amount of that is heavy. I also know that even as we go into small groups now, it can be very uncomfortable if something's on your heart to share it um, with a group. Um, so I just want to tell you, if you do have some of these things on your heart and it does feel difficult to share in your group or share with lots of people, um, don't give up, okay? Talk to your leader afterwards. Uh, you can email us. You can text us. Please email and text me. Um, remember, again, to talk to your parents if this is something you deal with. Again, join the club. I cannot say this enough. Join the club. Um, I know so much of us have been there, um, but we've also experienced and tasted the freedom that is in Christ. Um, and we want to share that with you, and we want to point out that it is for you too. Um, so um, in your small groups, be bold if you have been given boldness. Um, if you find difficulty, just come and talk to us after. I'll have an excuse or something like wandering around up here cleaning up stuff. So I'll be here Sunday morning. We're all here. Um, and if we're not here uh, now or on Sunday, we are available. Text us, email us. Uh, we want to deal with this together. We do care about you because Christ cares about you. Um, so with that, we are going to go into our small groups.
um, and uh, talk together. Thank you guys so much.